0: Trinitas Church, we've been in a brief, a brief trip through Christian eschatology, our belief about what the Lord will accomplish in time, and especially the last days. As it turns out, many of the hymns that we sing during this time of year allude to the fullness of what Jesus Christ will accomplish in the reign of in the reign that he executes after his resurrection. When we sing joy to the world, we say this He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. He makes the nations prove his goodness toward us. All of this is a genuine allusion to what the words of Scripture say. The angel who spoke to Mary spoke in these terms you shall name him Jesus. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign, and his kingdom will have no end. The Lord Jesus Christ is not like the first son of David, Solomon, who he saw last Lord's Day, revived idolatry. The true son of David, Jesus Christ, doesn't bring paganism back to life. He puts it In the grave. This Lord's Day, we're gonna read from Revelation 19, and we are going to see a grand portrait of the conquering Christ who came indeed to put an end to beastly nations, apostate churches, to bring about a reign on earth that is more glorious than what any one of us have ever imagined. The challenge of our sermon this Lord's Day. Will be this that we have thought too little of what our Savior Jesus Christ can and will do. And this is in part because we have thought too little of what Jesus has already done for us. With this in mind, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer, asking Him to open His word for us, asking Him to give us understanding in it. Please bow your heads with me. Mighty God, We sing familiar hymns based squarely on the teaching of Scripture, but seldom consider what they mean. Lord, many of us have carried about in this life hopeless about what you are accomplishing, supposing ourselves to have seen little of it already and having little anticipation of what you will do in the generations and centuries and ages to come. We pray, Lord God, that you would arrest this pessimism of ours, and Lord God, that we would be those who are fed by the teaching of your scriptures and the promises contained in them. Bring us back to the foot of the cross, and Lord, we pray, give us eyes to see what our Lord can do. In Jesus' name we pray, by your Holy Spirit, amen you'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, we'll read the whole chapter, some 21 verses. Then when I'm done, I'll say this is God's word, and then we'll rise to our feet and sing a short verse together, the Gloria Patri. Revelation 19. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And the second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. And the armies, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nation's And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him, the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is God's word. Trinitas Church, we've introduced this book three times now, and we'll do it once more. This book is written by the Apostle John, who outlived all the rest. It was written in the mid-60s A.D., when turmoil was just underway for Christ's church in Jerusalem. And yet this book is written to seven churches in Turkey. Churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Everyone for all time who picks up this book as well, however, is also among its audience. Its judgments, its blessings, its promises extend to the church throughout all generations. And the book opens telling us in no uncertain terms that it's telling us things in symbols. God sent his angel to signify to John. That is by signs to communicate what lies ahead. We saw that in chapter 12, the church could be described as both a mother and a child because Christ's church is always birthing and being born. Always, always overseeing and having a hand in new faith throughout the world. In chapter 13, we saw that after the church has a mighty triumph over pagan nations in the mainstream of her history, she capitulates to a pagan form of Christianity We're brought into the faith are many of the details and many of the practices of those religions over which she has triumphed. These are described as a beast from the earth, a beast from the land, an apostate church, and a political beast from the sea who reign and rule as if they were gods on earth. This is a pattern we see wherever Christianity triumphs. In her triumph, she often wants something of the power and the glory and the might of those pagan peoples over which she has triumphed. Well, we turn now to chapter 19 and many of you are saying, how in the world Brant, can you just skip five chapters? Others of you are saying, thank goodness he skipped five chapters. I don't know if I can handle anything more about crowns and heads and, and, and horns. Well, I'll do my best to simply summarize what happened in the intervening chapters. God describes in chapter 14 his elect sealed through all the turmoil of the church in all ages. In chapter 15, the church is seen giving God heavenly praises. And as a result of this, it unleashes seven chalices of divine judgment on those beasts that afflicted the church. The language in chapter 16, therefore, is reminiscent of the exodus, reminiscent of Joshua's conquest and return from exile. Judgments on earth and sea and rivers and sun and the Euphrates and the air and earthquakes and hail. These are the symbols and signs of which we read. And they culminate in a battle called the battle of Armageddon. What that word means is mountain of meeting. It's a battle, you could say, for Eden, for Christ's church, for where he dwells and has fellowship with man. Chapter 17 and 18 describe this battle, and it's not a one-time battle, friends. It describes this battle as it is experienced by God's enemies. In chapter 18, verse 20, it says this, Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, apostate Christianity, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. What you should hear is an allusion to Jesus' words in Mark 9. Jesus said, whoever causes one of my little ones to stumble, it would be better for him if, with the heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. The living God, the living God is promising to cast down the oppressors of his people. This takes us to chapter 19 which I submit to you is telling you about this battle of Armageddon, this battle for Eden, this battle for the church, not from the perspective of God's enemies, but his people. We have four things we'll consider today. The wedding feast, the victorious battle, the name of Christ you don't know, and the name of Christ you do. So let's begin with the marriage supper. We read in verses 7 to 10, A description of Christ's people saying, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And his bride has made herself ready. To what does this refer, this marriage supper? Well, on the one hand, brothers and sisters, every single Christian upon believing in Jesus becomes a part of his holy bride. This has been true for all time. So this is not describing something that's happened already in the past. It's also not describing eternity. In fact, there's a whole lot of human history that lies ahead from chapter 19. What it's describing are two realities. It's describing, first of all, an alteration of the church in heaven, or what you might call the church triumphant. We have been reading about martyrs made in the history of the Christian church that lies ahead for John, made in many different seasons. And the picture here is that the set number of martyrs have come in, and a definite time frame has elapsed. The church in heaven, after the church, has gone forth in all the world and made martyrs of men from every nation, kindred, tongue, and tribe. This church in heaven is, as it were, now complete, and the living God says, enough. Enough. These martyrs have been described throughout the book of Revelation as crying out to God, begging him to vindicate their witness, begging him to accomplish the ends for which they labored and battled in the Lord, namely nations filled with saving faith. And at this point, the living God says, the time has come. All throughout the Bible, when God's people are afflicted from Job to Christ himself, their affliction ends in exaltation. This heavenly church at this marriage supper of the Lamb is described This way, in verse 2, crying out, hallelujah, he has avenged the blood of his servants. They're speaking, they're speaking of what lies imminently ahead. This church is described the same way in verse 6, then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The church in heaven is described as an ocean. This reality in heaven is marked by another alteration of the church on earth. It's one in which the church on earth has victory over her oppressors from within and without. There's going to be a purity and unity of Christian worship on this planet There is going to be a unity of the church and a holiness of the church that still yet lies ahead and corresponds to this marriage supper of the land. It corresponds to when all the first fruits of all the nations are brought in and Christ and his bride embark from this wedding feast on a new sort of conquest The passage says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, that's all of you. If you've had faith in Christ, you will either be with the church triumphant in heaven on that day, or you'll be a member of the church on earth in her mighty conquest. And the Lord's Supper is a taste of that victory. John's response to this is that he falls on his face to worship the being who tells him these things. And it's as if John says, this is all I ever wanted to see. I was a zealous disciple of Christ when I walked this earth. This is what I wanted to see. He can't contain himself. At the same time, John shows some of that human weakness that will be a part Of every apostate Christianity wanting to worship any glorious thing that we see. And the messenger, the angel says, I've only told you about the future. I'm not the Jesus about whom I'm testifying. Don't bow down and worship me. John himself has to learn the lesson that the whole church is learning throughout her life. To worship Christ and nothing else. We turn now from the marriage supper to the victory in battle. I'm going to tell you on the front end, what you're going to hear when you hear this is Jesus' second coming. But it's not. It is designed to sound like it. But it's a symbol of what Christ will do through his church with whom he has mystical union says this, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. What is this you may say? One of the reasons we know this isn't Jesus' second coming is because we've already seen Jesus throughout the book of Revelation coming in mighty ways. In chapter 6, verse 2, he's described as the rider of a white horse as well, going forth to conquer and to conquer. And that's very near the beginning of the church's life. And it swiftly went out and conquered the Roman Empire. This is yet another mighty expression of Christ's providence. We saw in chapters 2 through 3 that all of the various churches of Revelation are threatened with comings of Christ. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus himself spoke from his own mouth. Remember from where you have fallen or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand. I'll come and take your church. To Pergamum he said, repent or else I am coming to you quickly and to make war with the sword of my mouth. Jesus has been coming since day one, warring with his enemies by the sword of his mouth. Striking people down in death with him and raising them anew in salvation. Moreover, this is full of other symbols and this is another clue that this is a grand symbol of Christ's work in Christian history. He wears many crowns, friends. He has a robe dipped in blood and he has a sword proceeding from his mouth. This is not speaking of Christ's return. This is speaking of Jesus' gospel conquest that he has promised to bring about through his church. The timing of the passage points us in the same direction. This is long before the general resurrection and final judgment of chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. And most of all, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we know from the rest of Scripture That Christ has chosen through his church to conquer all nations. He told the disciples to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He told his disciples in John 14, you will do greater works than these my own. Jesus rejoices and desires to conquer through his church. What I submit to you therefore we're reading about is the mystical union of Christ's church with Jesus this mystical union, Jesus promising I will be with you to the end of the age and I will come to you by my spirit and I will mightily conquer through you. So when we ask the question, what is this all about? After the height of affliction from the enemy, from without and within, the saints will have victory in human history. After much gospel progress, there will be gospel triumph. We see this, first of all, in that Jesus is called faithful and true. He is riding forth to fulfill the innumerable prophecies about the breadth and the depth of blessing in his kingdom. His robe is dipped in blood. That blood is his own. And his martyr's blood. And it is the ground, the basis for his conquest in vindication of them and of himself. This blood looks forward to the judgment that lies ahead for his enemies. And it looks backwards to what his suffering church has experienced. His eyes are eyes of fire. They have a weight of justice and judgment upon them. You all know what it feels like. When a judge peers on you with a judgment, unwelcome. The two new things accomplished by this mighty coming that we have not read about before in the book of Revelation is the removal of apostate Christianity, a casting of the false prophet, a casting of him down, and a removal of beastly nations who resist the lordship of Christ. Says the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, and these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Recall that these are institutions, they're not peoples, and like the devil himself described in the next chapter, they are bound, cast down. Those mighty demonic powers that lie behind the various afflicting agents on earth, these nations and apostate churches are removed. And the mechanism is the most important. It's all done with the double-edged sword proceeding from the mouth of Christ. Brothers and sisters, when you read about the double-edged sword, you should hear Hebrews 4.12, which describes the scriptures as a word, a sword with two edges that pierces the very soul. From his mouth comes this sword. Sword so that he may strike down the nations. We had a foretaste of this sword in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached. It says that the Jewish people from all nations gathered there on that day were what? cut to the heart by the word of God preached. This is telling us that the word of God will be the mechanism through which this conquest comes about. Some of you might be saying, Brant, how in the world can nations, whole institutions be brought into submission to Christ? There must be some new thing, some new special mechanism, some new idea. It's nothing new at all. It's the word of God faithfully proclaimed, faithfully preached the prophet Isaiah foretold these days. He describes the nation of Israel as God's servant. And as speaking these words, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And the fruit, the fruit of a people with the word of God on their lips is that kings will be your guardians and their princes your nurses. Isaiah forty nine twenty six. Being struck down by a sword is good news, friends. Everyone in this room, if you've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, the word of God was preached to you and you were struck down it. The old you was killed and a new you was raised up in its place. The picture is is that the nations will die with Christ, rise with Christ. The picture is that the unbelieving element of those nations that's left over, which is described as flesh, will be picked apart by the unclean birds representing the demonic forces, not giving them power to reign and rule, but immobilizing them. It should remind you of this story in the Gospels. When Jesus casts out the demon from the Gerasian man, the demons beg to go into the swine and run them into the sea. The picture is that when the nations are exercised, It is not as though you will lose every and any unbelieving element of them, but they'll be immobilized by the demons they serve. Finally, I would observe that this event about which we are reading is gradual. It's described as a procession. It says that he judges and wages war. And not only that, it says that the fruit of this is that he will rule them with a rod of iron. The fruit of it is nations brought into submission to Jesus. The picture is not of a single one-time event, and it corresponds to so many passages in Psalm 2, Psalm 110, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, that Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, friends, I know when I expound this, many of you are saying, "Brant, this just sounds unbelievable. I simply cannot imagine a world where biblical Christianity is prevailing. I can't imagine a world where most governments are overtly Christian. Well, friends, the passage anticipates that disposition of your soul, and it tells you something in verse 12 that answers exactly to that sense of your soul. It says this, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. This is the name you don't know. God's names, I will have you understand, express his nature, his character, and his redemptive acts. His name Elohim, or God in the Old Testament, means power. His name Yahweh means self-existent. His name El Elyon means highest power. His name Yahweh Jirah means the Lord provides. His name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the deepest insight we have as yet into who our God is but by telling us that he wears a name that no one knows but himself, he is telling you something. You have yet to see all that he can do. You have yet to see what his mighty hand can accomplish. And you cannot evaluate what is possible for the almighty Jesus Christ based on what you have already seen alone. This means we ought to live in the greatest anticipation that we might get to see more of what this God can do. We ought to live in the greatest anticipation that things seemingly unbelievable, impossible, are going to be accomplished by our Lord. Trinitas, I simply ask you, do you profess belief in the God accomplished a new thing in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and yet carry on hopeless? Carry on thinking I've seen it all. I will tell you this, our forebearers in the faith did not think like this. The principal reformer in the nation of England was a man named Thomas Cranmer. He advocated reform on every level of society, in church and in government. But at the end of his days, his enemies got the best of him. Cranmer was tortured, he was imprisoned, he was subjected to psychological abuse for months and months and months. man virtually went insane. And they got him, in one of his weakest moments, to sign a document retracting all of his efforts of reformation. And then they told him, We're going to bring you to trial. And we're also going to condemn you. You're going to be condemned to death. And we want you to publicly tell everyone present that you recant all of your Protestant beliefs. Well, what would happen if that trial was the exact opposite? Cranmer sincerely believed that the nation executing him would one day be a Christian nation. And when he was sent to the flames, the man held out his right hand with which he signed that recantation that it might be the first limb of his body to be burned off as he spoke publicly his sincere belief in what Christ had done in his accomplished work of the gospel, his sincere belief. Is something that to you might seem so mundane as the reform doctrine of the Lord's Supper was indeed biblical. He did this because he believed things unbelievable. He believed he hadn't seen it all, and he was glad to be a martyr and die, having some small hand and some greater accomplishment in some greater extension of the kingdom of God beyond what the world had seen before. Jesus has a name you don't know, friends. Be very careful not to judge what he can and cannot do based on what you think you have seen. But here's the thing. Jesus has a name you do know. And that name should be enough. We're told in verse 13, and his name is called the Word of God. That should be enough. This name speaks to the fact that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was in the beginning with God the Father, and He was the very mechanism, the powerful creative Word that brought everything you know into being out of nothing. Out of nothing! He brought everything into being out of nothing. He relates to His Father. Not like our words relate to us but as a powerful agent who gives perfect expression to his father's being and will. He's described in Isaiah 55, 11. God says, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ was sent into this world to redeem it. He was sent in this world to be a propitiation, a satisfaction of God's wrath for the whole world. A whole world a people saved and redeemed living and breathing the gospel. And this word does not go forth without succeeding in the matter for which he was sent. Friends, you know this name of Christ. And we have already seen the gospel alter the world irrevocably. Wherever it appears, no government, no philosophy, no religion can stay the same where Christ has been preached. You've already seen it. And so this should not sound unbelievable to you. Everywhere the name of Christ is proclaimed, Everyone must tip their hat to him, acknowledge him. And at their worst, all they can do is relate as parasites to him because he is life and all else is death. Let me tell you what this means. You take, for example, the Roman Pope, who is without question dumbed down and perverted the gospel The Roman Pope has said, Jesus, yes, he's the door to salvation. I can't deny him. But I'm like the door before the door. I'm like the screen door. He's come with blasphemous doctrines, prescribing dead works to perform so that you can co-merit your salvation. He's prescribed prayer to saints. And of recent, he has, of course, begun to bless same-gender unions It should not sound impossible that en masse the nations will say to the Pope, you're not a door, you're a brick wall. It shouldn't sound impossible. You might look in the world and see Islam as an impenetrable force. Islam as well has to say, yes, yes, Jesus was a great prophet. They must. It's impossible to deny They simply say it turns out that Muhammad is the greatest. As the world becomes the more acquainted with Muhammad's sexual escapades, his violent religion from the start, and most of all a God who is capricious and saves by neglecting his justice, not by satisfying it, it should not sound impossible. That by the measure of Jesus, Muhammad is a false prophet, and we'll take the living Jesus who is holy, whose sword proceeds from his mouth and does not go into a sheath at his side, who preserves God's love and his justice in our salvation on the cross, and who has conquered the world without a sword wielded by men. You might look into the world and see Marxism. Marxism as well is a parasite on Jesus, Marxism takes the idea that Jesus was the model peasant. He represented the lower class in society, and yet he prevailed. He was exalted. So said Karl Marx, following George Hegel. They love the verses that say that Jesus has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. And that's why they say we advocate societal revolutions and violent overthrow of the wealthy. It shouldn't sound impossible to you that the communist nations will one day say, Jesus is the true revolutionary who by his commandments and almighty spirit makes the wealthy into gift givers who truly believe it is better to give than to receive. And so we don't have to be violent overtakers. You might look into the world today and see the scientific community They, too, acknowledge Jesus tacitly, their entire discipline ushered into this world by Christians. What they essentially say is this, we'll take Jesus as the eternal word of God who imposes order on material reality. We'll assume it's there before we can even find it, and then we'll just go about doing our business, but we can't tolerate the word of God made flesh who does miracles, one-time unrepeatable deeds. We won't have that. Friends, as this same community comes face to face with a universe that they already admit burst into being out of nothing, and life bursting into being out of non-life, and species bursting into being with no predecessors, and as they confront their own conscience, burdened with sin, the weight of which cannot be measured on material scales, it shouldn't sound impossible, that these secular nations will say, Jesus, the governor of the universe, is the miracle worker who made the universe, life and species, and even more, the redeemer who reconciles us to God. Friends, set aside high-minded philosophies. Many of us are simply hedonists. We live for every next NFL football game. It shouldn't sound impossible that those who love such an excellent sport would recognize that what they've loved the whole time is really Jesus. You know, I'm convinced that what people love about football is this, that this is the one place in reality where there is a clear distinction between good and evil, where I and everyone watching it in the stadium loves the enforcement of rules for once. It's the only place where, by inscrutable providence, the underdog often wins and where we're more happy to celebrate what others have done than we ourselves. It should not sound impossible that a world would wake up and say, what I've been after in all these games, that's what Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is in reality. And I'll never miss the good news on the Lord's day again. Friends, one of the incredible things that the gospel is going to accomplish is that the nation of those, the ethnic people who rejected Jesus, will one day believe. They'll wake up and say, oh my goodness, in Abraham's seed, all the nations have been blessed. In Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ, our Messiah has come. And this should not sound to you impossible. It ultimately shouldn't sound impossible in light of your own salvation. How many of you had a day before you believed in Jesus and you go, oh my goodness, I can't believe I ever thought and lived and acted like that. I can't, believe, I can't believe I did that. Why does it sound impossible to us that that could happen on a massive scale? What kind of world would we live in if two-thirds of our elected officials on every level of government acknowledged the lordship of Christ? What incredible discoveries would we find? if two-thirds of the entire scientific community believed in Christ and trusted his every word. Friends, to doubt for a moment what our Lord Jesus can do in his mighty conquest of the nations is virtually to doubt what he has done in us. Believer, if you've gathered with us this Lord's Day, I want you to know we are not living and laboring in this life so that we can die and just go to heaven. We are here to firmly believe that we are bringing some of heaven to earth and that in Christ's wise timing, our efforts will be vindicated beyond our wildest imagination. You need to know you're gonna be part of a heavenly community someday that is daily receiving more members, more news. How's it going on the battlefront? You're going to be part of a heavenly community one day, celebrating every triumph that is shared. This isn't your only life right here, brothers and sisters. Friends, if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, I want to just impress this on you. We've been told in no uncertain terms that there is this sword that proceeds from the mouth of Christ. You are either struck by your sinfulness when you hear this gospel represented by the sword and you die with Christ, trusting in him unto salvation. Or you become food for the enemy. There's an alternative set forth in this passage. There is the marriage supper of the lamb. You can have a taste of it right here. And there's only one other table. It is the table of demons. At the marriage supper of the lamb, Christ gives himself to feed you. At that other table, you are the meal. That is it. That's the only alternative. And we implore you to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Become a part of his kingdom. Become a tool in the extension of his rule. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Living God, we confess that it's hard to believe the things that you tell us. And why don't we expect this when you're the almighty living God who spoke the worlds into existence out of nothing? Why is this hard for us? We've come confessing our sins. Lord, we just pray for your spirit and empowerment, imploring you with the promise of Christ in mind that if we ask the Father for the spirit, you'll be liberal to give it to us without measure. Living God, we pray that your kingdom your spirit would come. Living God, we do not pray that your church, your kingdom would leave. We pray that it would come in ever greater measure. And we pray, Lord God, that on this Lord's day, we would be smitten with your promises about what lies ahead. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and by your Holy Spirit, amen.